When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of the Elevate Your Leadership podcast is brought to you in part by iFly Virginia Beach Indoor Skydiving. At iFly Virginia Beach, we bring people together through the dream of flight. Visit our website at iFlyVABeach.com to learn more about our group events to include leadership development, team building, and family fun. Welcome to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast series with U.S. Navy Special Operations veteran, CEO, and hockey fanatic, Bob Pazzini. Bob discusses leadership, success, failure, defining moments, and hard lessons learned with guests who are intentional in their approach to leadership. Leadership is a perishable skill. Use it or lose it. In this series, entrepreneurs, industry executives, academics, public figures, and other highly effective professionals share their formulas for success with you. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Elevate Your Leadership podcast with me, your host, Bob Pizzini. As you know, I like to have discussions with guests who are going to make me a better leader through their experience, through their education, through their wisdom, and through these discussions you will become a better leader. Today's guest is an exception to say the least. I have Eric Maddox on the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. Eric is an author, motivational speaker, and consultant who teaches audiences worldwide in the art of empathy-based listening. He is the author of the book, Mission, Blacklist Number One, published by HarperCollins in 2008, which details his lead in the search and capture of Saddam Hussein. After graduating from the University of Oklahoma in 1994, Eric enlisted in the U.S. Army, where he was a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division, a jump master, all okay, jump master, and a graduate (laughs) of Ranger School. He then re-enlisted in 1997 as a Chinese Mandarin linguist and interrogator. Okay, you go from Ranger to Chinese Mandarin linguist interrogator, natural transition. I'm sure, you know, hundreds of, of paratroopers have done that. In 2003, he was sent to Tikrit, Iraq, where he joined a Delta Force team who was searching for high-value targets on the infamous deck of cards. After five months and over 300 interrogations, Eric was able to track down and eventually give the team the exact location of the spider hole in which Saddam hid. For this, he was awarded the Legion of Merit. Big wow there, brother. Wow. Thank you. National Intelligence Medal of Achievement the Defense Intelligence Agency Director's Award, I don't even know what that is, and the Bronze Star. Following the capture of Saddam, Eric was hired as the first ever civilian interrogator by the Defense Intelligence Agency, where he went on to conduct over 2,700 interrogations of prisoners from 25 different countries. I'm going to ask you about that. Hopefully you can discuss some of that. Having served in the U.S. Army and Defense Intelligence Agency for 20 years, Eric now devotes his work full-time to teaching what he learned during that time to audiences worldwide, the art of empathy-based listening. Eric Maddox, welcome to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. Thank you, Bob. Man, you've done a lot, to say the least. I'd really like to start just by getting to know Eric a little bit more than what we just read in the resume. Where did, where did Eric Maddox grow up and how did you become Eric Maddox? So I grew up in Oklahoma, a small town called Sepulpa. It's a blue collar town. I would say I lived a pretty normal childhood. My parents worked hard. I'm 50. So I grew up in the (laughs) seventies and eighties. I would say if I had to say what was unique, I'm left-handed. I think I do see the world differently. Uh, I was adopted at birth. So I think it naturally led me to have questions. And I, I would say I was the younger brother. So for I, I guess my life, I felt like I was always asking a question, like, how does this work? And wh- 
why do we do things that way? I, I think I naturally have an intuitive mind to wonder. So, you know, other than that, I, I feel like I'm very patriotic. I, I graduated high school, went to University of Oklahoma, and I'm about to graduate and go join the world in the workplace. And I really wanted to be an attorney. I wanted to be a lawyer. But I had a need like so many young Americans, because we are a very patriotic country, to join the military. And I didn't know anything about the Army. I'm not the gun type. I, I, I just didn't grow up around military people. But I knew I loved the military, and I enlisted in the Army. And I enlisted as an infantry guy, because that seemed cool. Like, if you really want to join, just go in the infantry. So I enlisted in the Army. It's awesome, man. And that's after you completed a four-year degree? That is. I graduated from the University of Oklahoma. I, it's funny you say that, so I got to jump in there because sure. my mom continually, from the day I joined, she said, why don't you become an officer? I'm like, I don't want to become an officer because I saw the movie Platoon and the cool guys were enlisted. So I don't even know what that means. Like, what's the difference? She goes, well, you get paid more. I said, Nobody gets paid any money in the middle. Like if I joined, <laughs> this is about money. True I that. That's space. right. So I absolutely loved it. Um, me personally, I just like the role of the enlisted, especially non-commissioned officers. That's awesome, man. And then Ranger, how did that come about? That's no small undertaking. So when you're at the 82nd or probably any infantry unit, you, you, you become very well aware of Ranger school. And it's something that, seems like a great challenge you hear horror stories and I wanted to go to ranger school so it was one of my early goals I had the opportunity very early on when you enlist with a college degree you kind of come in as an E4 uh -huh. so that's the rank you have to kind of get to to even go to ranger school so they let me go early and it was it was really a struggle for me you could recycle ranger school I recycled three times so it's supposed to be a 72-day course. I spent 168 days at Ranger School, right? Wow. But wow. for me, it set an early foundation of what it means to be a leader and problem solve and deal through struggles. So I'm extremely proud that I graduated Ranger School. And I, I think it was, for me, it was, it was really a great help to push me in those early, in that early year of being in the Army. I can totally relate just with my training, Navy EOD, Navy diving, teaching you how to problem solve, teaching you how to be a, a, a highly contributing member of a team, man, those were the the cornerstones really of, of my entire professional life. And, and uh, I'm sure it's the same with you, you know? So, and then how did you decide on Mandarin Chinese? That's a, that's a heck of a ch uh, career change. Another great question. So I enlisted because I wanted to be serving my country. But when you get into the Army, probably in the military, you realize there's a lot of opportunities here. My unit at the 82nd, my last year, went, uh, did a five-month deployment to Panama. While we're there, you know, you get out and about. I thought it was so cool to speak Spanish. I took Spanish in high school, but I didn't do really well because I don't really care. And I thought <laughs> it was very intriguing. And I always thought I could never learn a foreign language. I realized I learned that the army had a foreign language program. So you go take this random test, not even a language. You take this military aptitude test. I passed it and they said, you can take any language you want. Well, Chinese is the hardest. So I don't think I can learn it, but this military is pretty awesome. So I'm going to find out. So I re-enlisted as a Chinese Mandarin linguist and my MOS was that of an interrogator. Wow. So you qualified for the hardest language possible. And of course, that's the one you chose. So you really challenged yourself, uh, which is pretty awesome. Probably something, uh, you know, that that self-challenge is probably something that the Ranger uh, training helped you with along the way. That's incredible. How do you go from Mandarin Chinese to interrogator to working with the special forces in Iraq? Great question. So I started my Chinese training in 97, 1997, I got through with the language training and the interrogation course in 99. So you don't know what's going to happen, right? You don't know where they're going to send you. Well, in 2001, pre 
I get sent to Los Angeles, California to work as an intelligence collection officer against the Chinese for the United States military. And they have these crazy jobs around the globe. You never know about them. They said, <laughs> hey, you're going you're gonna to hit up Chinese scientists and researchers along the West Coast. So I'm working and I'm assigned to the Defense Intelligence Agency. Well, we 9-11 occurs and we start going to war. We go to war in Afghanistan. Well, once you go to war, Bob, you'll appreciate this. Well, you start having prisoners. We hadn't had prisoners through the 90s. We hadn't been at war. Mm-hmm. So they start plucking these linguists who are kind of in their special focus of Chinese or Persian Farsi or whatever. And they start sending them to Afghanistan. Well, they're not sending the Chinese guys because they're not Chinese people. Then we go to war in Iraq. Well, they're still not sending the Chinese interrogator because <laughs> they don't need me. But they're in the war was the Joint Special Operations Command. They're looking for the deck of cards. Anybody remembers almost 20 years ago, they had the infamous deck of cards, Saddam was the ace of spades, and JSOC was responsible for tracking those down. JSOC needed an interrogator to go with them on the raids. On the, There they are. There's deck the deck of cards. cards. Still have mine from my time in Iraq. So, Bob, JSOC said, we need an interrogator who can go on some raids. So they kind of did a quick search to the army and said, give us all the interrogators who are former infantry. You know, it'd be helpful if they graduated ranger school. That'd be kind of a bonus. Apparently I was the only one. So I got plucked from Los Angeles working as a Chinese linguist to Iraq with JSOC, sent up to the little team into Crete, Iraq. And that's how I began my very first kind of wartime deployment. And on a critical mission, were were you like generally assigned or were you assigned? I guess since you were with a JSOC team, you had a very clear target set. Is that right? I don't know what you mean by like my orders were for JSOC. And when you get there, you're theirs. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I didn't know. I don't even know who these guys are. I'm like, cool. I've never done an interrogation before. I've been focused on China. What do you guys? So, but you don't want to ask a bunch of questions. And then they specifically sent me to the Delta Force team in Crete. That's I'm with them. That's funny too because when I went to Iraq, I, so JSOC, I was assigned to be the counter IED officer, you know, principal advisor to the JSOC commander. And uh, I got there in Balad, and uh, they go, "Oh, Navy EOD guy." They go, "You got all that gear that that fancy stuff you guys get issued?" I go, "Yeah, it's all right there." They go. You're going downrange. So, yeah. So you're right. You never know. But uh, but it was awesome. It was okay. So now you're in to Crete. Uh, I would imagine at this point, you know, your your target is clear, or was it just a series of interrogations? I mean, clearly you were going after Saddam at some point, very deliberately. How did that kind of develop? Great. So I arrived with this team, and, and nobody's going to remember, but it was July of 2003. So the war had been going on for about four years, uh, four months. They had the deck of cards. They'd captured a lot of people on the deck of cards, but the hunt for Saddam had kind of run cold. I'm sent to to Crete and the team there, we really, they did not think Saddam was there. No, nobody did because it's a little town. You pretty much been through all the houses, but they did have a mission and it was it's a pretty hairy place up there. It's right in the middle of the Sunni Triangle. Mm-hmm. there could be people on the deck of cards still here. So really it was a general mission. What the insurgency looks like, because Bob in that our first several months, we didn't know who the enemy were. We, we just, there were no uniform or no battlefield. So it was a general mission. And in general, they said, we need you to get the prisoners just to cooperate. So that's kind of the way it started. Uh, at some point, did you know that you were on Saddam's trail? Yeah, I think I did. Um, when you say that, I think anybody who's been on a deployment, you can think some things, but you you don't ever know, right? Like, For sure. As an intelligence collection officer, everybody hopes they're going after Saddam, but he hadn't been anywhere we've looked. So you're really apprehensive about, I think I'm right, but I don't, how would I know? I've never done this before, but yeah, right. I ended up doing 300 interrogations with this team. 
And wow. about number 250, when I'd gotten the people to cooperate and I was getting close because really it was going after one guy I thought knew the location of Saddam. He was a bodyguard, inner circle bodyguard of Saddam. The hunt was really for him. I mean, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do when I got it. I was going to hope he would take us to Saddam, but I wasn't yeah. looking for Saddam. I was looking for the person I thought could take us. And when we captured the driver of this bodyguard, the driver told me, he said, Eric, I'm the driver for the bodyguard. He has me deliver orders and money throughout the Sunni Triangle. He's taking orders from Saddam. He does know where Saddam is. And it was at that point, on this is about December 1st, Saddam will be captured on December 13th. But it was about December 1st where I really thought, I think we got a shot here. So you said um, at about interrogation number 250 is, is when you captured that guy. Yeah, and, that is what I said. Okay, when you got the drive, when you got the bodyguard's driver. What timeline, how long did it take you to do 250 interrogations to get to that point? From July to December 1st. Okay. 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 Gotcha. And then, and by the way, let me just ask one thing real quick. We've all seen and heard the term enhanced interrogation. Uh-huh. Um, can you discuss any of the mechanics of your interrogations? Sure. So my whole thing is what I call empathy-based listening. So, you know, if we to get in that interrogation discussion, we go as deeper, as shallow as you want, but basically the United States military has interrogation techniques. They don't condone torture. So let's be up front. Sure. But I found, and I think everybody in the military would agree that they're very ineffective. They just didn't work because if you, can imagine you've got to get willing cooperation from an individual who has no trust in you. So the techniques they taught were zero sum game. So it was this idea that you're going to build enough rapport with a prisoner, get them to trust you enough to at least talk with you. You're going to learn a little bit about them. And then with conviction and authority, you're going to convince them, Hey, you're stuck. You don't have a choice. You're going to spend the rest of your life in this prison or else. And, by the way, you're going to give me everything you know. That has limited success. I, I really think it struggles. What we found, though, is, is that it was approved to say, well, yeah, but you got to really know, let them know you mean business, right? Like, don't let them sleep or don't give them food or, you know, yell louder. And it kind of took its own path of, well, then you decide from there what I realized was what I call empathy-based listening. I want to make sure everybody knows, let's not confuse empathy with sympathy. Never sure. been nice to a prisoner ever. But I did realize in the conversations that I could get the prisoners, they have an idea, they have a plan. And if I can communicate to empower them to explore their options of what they think's best, they really like it. And if I can embrace them, them the idea of going, this interrogator, he doesn't know exactly what he wants me to do, but I can see he's willing to work to listen. I know the interrogator needs help, but if he'll help me get what I need, I got to get him exactly what he wants. And just the seeds of that communication, what I realized is some of these prisoners, they loved that partnership. They loved being part of this team that could do operation so fast and so critical that they started coming up with ideas of thinking maybe we should get rid of Saddam. Yeah. I mean, I could make my life better if I did get this brutal dictator out of the picture. This guy seems to be willing to listen to me and it took on a world of its own. So wow. you had get what it was. The pictures are not lying. There, yeah. there were enhanced interrogation techniques. I just thought it was more effective to do it a different way. Empathy-based listening. So M, to be with, pathy feeling. So to feel with, right? Empathy-based listening, to feel yeah. with that person. We're gonna we're going to explore that here as soon as we get done talking about Saddam, because that's I think that's where the real value is going to be for our listeners as we go forward in the discussion. I'm gonna do a quick announcement for my friend Kevin Neff. Kevin makes sense media.com. If you see the t-shirt I'm wearing today. 
Kevin says, never fear a bright idea. So this is Kevin's brand logo on his t-shirt. So folks, Kevin has done great work for Elevate Your Leadership. He's done great work for iFly Virginia Beach. KevinMakesSense.com. Never fear a bright idea. Okay, Eric. So you got the driver. He leads to the bodyguard and that leads to the spider hole. Can you can you just tell us about that a little bit? Sure. So the driver struggled to know where his boss, the bodyguard, was. He said, you know, so he gave us five safe houses. We hit all five safe houses. No bodyguard. People from the safe house, right? I brought them in, interrogated. One of them kind of said, hey, you're going after that bodyguard. He's in this town of Samar. He's no longer in Tikrit. He went to Samar. So he gave us the senior commander under the bodyguard in Samar. We go to that house, raid that house. No bodyguard. That commander's little brother said, no, 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 that bodyguard wasn't here. He's, he rented a house. He is in Samar. He's a couple of blocks away. We go to that house, raid that house. No bodyguard. Had the bodyguard's 20-year-old son. I brought the 20-year-old son in. He's like, yeah, my dad was here. The bodyguard, he was here a couple hours ago. He left. How would I know where he went? So at that point, I think I'm done. My, I'm now down days left. The boy, the 20-year-old son, says, well, we talked and we talked and we connected. The boy, he didn't look at this in interrogation. I think I was like his personal family counselor because this boy starts crying. He tells me his dad, the bodyguard, doesn't love him. His dad doesn't respect him and he's crying. And I'm like, man, this is really not the direction. But I kind of stuck with him. And he said something. He said, I wish my dad and I would do things like we used to do when I was a kid. So what y'all used to do? So we used to go fishing. And I said, come on, man. Your dad's in the middle of a war. Can we, maybe we ought to cut your dad some slack. He said, no, he goes, still goes fishing. He just doesn't take me. Wow. Robert, one of the early interrogations I did, we captured Saddam Hussein's cook. And the cook was wide open and said, hey, Saddam loves this one fish dish. It's called Maz Goof. I asked the boy, I said, where, where do they go fishing? He said, along the Tigris River. I said, but where? He said, well, they just built this fish pond next to the river. They just built a fish pond during the middle of a war. I don't know what people, I don't know how you prepare for war if you're the enemy, but I don't think you need to be building fish ponds. Not so, in the uh, not in the training manuals. No. So I told my Delta Force commander, his name was Bam Bam. I was like, we got to hit this fish pond. We hit the fish pond. No bodyguard. Fishermen. At the fish pond, brought him in, interrogated him. He said, hey, I'm a fisherman. I'm the bodyguard's relative. They went to Baghdad, which was kind of good. So he said, the bodyguard's he's afraid of you guys. My tour's basically running up. Bam Bam says, man, you're leaving the country. Go there. Try to get the next target. Maybe he's in Baghdad. So I'm in Baghdad. One of the fishermen says, yep, I'm not a fisherman. Oh, by the way. The bodyguard is a distant relative of mine. He came and got an address of our mutual aunt and uncle in Baghdad. I'm like, sweet. He gave us the address. The commander in Baghdad conducted the raid, hoping to find the bodyguard. No bodyguard. It's December 13th at one o'clock in the morning. I leave in seven hours. So he brings in the prisoners. No bodyguard. I interrogated one of the people at the house from the house in Baghdad. And he opens up and he says, I work for the bodyguard. And I'm like, we raided a house in Baghdad. How on earth is the bodyguard's number two guy here? And he finally, the, this number two guy looks at me and said, you know, the bodyguard was here last night. And I'm like, where'd he go? He said, he was here. You all grabbed me and he was in the bed next to me. He's here. And I thought, oh, my gosh, they got him. They got him last night. They didn't know they got my bodyguard. So I go start lifting up all hoods. We didn't have a picture of the bodyguard, Bob, but I knew what he's supposed to look like. He's supposed to have a like a John Travolta chin. Uh-huh. On the last hood, lift it up. There's my chin. There's my bodyguard. It's 4 o'clock in the morning. I have four hours. My, I actually had to leave at 6. Took me two hours. And at 6, the bodyguard opens up. And he's wow. like, we got to go, man. Eric, we got to go now. He said he's in this little village called Adwar, the farmhouse of man, Kais, Namek, Jassim. And I'm excited. I'm like, cool, we got him. Well, the interrogators in 
Baghdad, they didn't, they thought I was not like, they didn't think I was really on to Saddam. So they were like, cool, go catch the plane. I'm like, no, no, I got to stay. Like, dude, your flight's leaving the country. Go. And I'm like, call Bam Bam. Tell him the bodyguard is ready. I left. Put me on a flight. When you're with this JSOC, you go to Doha, Cutter, the headquarters. You got to do an yeah. out briefing. So next morning, show up for my out briefing. Senior officer opens up the little door and is like, all briefings today have been canceled. Clunk. Sergeant knocks on the door. He's like, Staff Sergeant Maggs can't leave the country till he gets his briefing. And I can tell by the guy's eyes. He pulls me inside the door and he said, you're Eric Maddox. I said, yes. He said, briefings are canceled. We got him. Wow. Your bodyguard did it. And wow. Yeah. That's fascinating, yeah. man. What was, what was that moment like for you? I mean, were you just in pause or did you jump up and down and scream or man, how do you, how do you, how do you process that in the moment? So I would say it's the only time in my life where I felt like I had an out-of-body experience. Like, I'm not kidding. I felt like I was on the ceiling looking down. And I'm not kidding. I, was, I felt like I could see it. I pretty much blacked out, but I just stood there. It's not like yeah. I fainted. And um, my other interrogator buddy, who was redeploying back with me, was just kind of shaking me. And he was like, holy yeah. smokes, you yeah. did it. You did it. You know, it was just a very, uh, it was a great feeling. It was overwhelming. It's great. Uh, very satisfying feeling. Yeah. Overwhelming and satisfying that I can see how that, that would be the emotions um, in the moment, <laughs> man. That is, that's incredible. You mentioned the art of empathy based listening in your interrogation process. Is that something that they taught you in interrogator school, certainly not in Mandarin Chinese school, but I mean, how, how did you come across that process, if you will? Sure. So no, they didn't teach it. And just kind of the fast forward. So with the capture of Saddam, I was taken immediately to the Pentagon, right? So I go to the Pentagon, brief secretary Rumsfeld. And during the briefing, he obviously liked this way we captured Saddam, but he liked the interrogations. And he pretty much by the end of that weekend, gave the Department of Defense the approval, the funding for a 30-person civilian interrogation team that would fall under the Defense Intelligence Agency. I was being offered the first position. And the reason, well, hopefully, is because my first assignment is they said, you have to teach this thing. Because it was really different. I mean, it was the opposite. I always tell people, like, well, what's the difference in what you do versus what we were taught? And I'm not trying to take away from any of the old techniques. Sure. But Bob, think about like how we handled medical before what we learned in Mogadishu, right? Like just the process of how you put on a bandage, when you put on a tourniquet, right? It's like mm -hmm. completely opposite. Well, I always say, I was like, take everything from the textbook and do the exact opposite, which is an insulting statement. I get it can be sure but it's just different it's 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 the complete difference of trying to gain cooperation so i wasn't taught it but my next assignment is i had to teach it and that's actually where i spent the next 10 years was going on deployments and ended up doing eight 2700 interrogations and teaching the empathy-based listening interrogation process so did you uh, transition to government service then, or did you retire? You know, did you retire from the army or what, how did that transition go? Well, I just transitioned. I actually got out of the military. So I ended up doing 10 years. Okay. And then I did 10 years as a GS. Gotcha. With the DIA. Okay. Sorry. How long ago did you retire from the DIA? 2014. 2014. Okay. So since then, you have taken the concept of empathy-based listening and you've turned this into a product that you present to organizations, to businesses, to business leaders, 
Can you tell us about that? That's ultimately the meat here. The Saddam story is incredible. But again, for my listeners, I bring value to business leaders and CEOs and people who want to be leaders. And the value of empathy-based listening is, I, I don't think it can be overstated. Please tell us how you how you transition that. Sure. So uh, during the process of being with the DIA, being an interrogator, the government allowed me. They actually promoted me. They said, go write this book. This is a very positive military story. So I actually wrote the book in 2008. It was published in 2008. I mean, I was with the DIA for six more years after the publishing of the book. So, it was, so uh, I was okay. still doing the job, but I started getting asked to tell the story for pay, for keynotes. So you tell the story and I kept getting the same question, but how do we do it? Teach us that thing. Mm-hmm. So when I started learning more about business and what leaders need and what sales group need or negotiations, I realized, I said, you're selling you're leading under the same idea that we were taught to interrogate. And I'll, I'll try to explain the difference. When we think about leadership, we think about an individual trying to lead, influence, get other people to do what they want them to do. Many times, if you became a leader, you have years of success, you have experience, you have a proven method, you have a plan, and you want others to follow your plan. Empathy-based listening says you're as good as you claim to be. You are. That's legit. But if you'll take your skill, your value proposition, and seek to understand the perspective of your team, it empowers them so that we can discover their genius, their abilities of 10 people versus your genius of one. But to do that, Nobody thinks that's coming. Nobody thinks the leader is going to come and seek to discover your vision. So you have to demonstrate that your means of communication is through discovery, without an agenda, without preconceived notions of, yeah, I'm listening to you, but really I'm just listening for me. Yeah, Uh I'm going to listen to you to make you think I'm nice, but really we're going to do it my way. Uh-huh. But the true discovery, that's why I call it empathy. It's seeking to understand another person's perspective. It's not what you discover. It's the empowerment of the other individuals when yeah. they see that you're seeking to discover. You know, owning my business for uh, coming up on nine years now, having 40 people on my team and having gone through, I would say, an evolutionary process to become more yeah empathetic and more effective at being, you know, I mean, when they just talk about empathetic leadership, that's, that's, that's all over the place these days. And then there's emotional uh, intelligence that all often um, connected to that. And maybe you connected in your presentations as well, but there's all these layers to it. And I can just say that for most of my military career, as much as I loved all 26 years of my military career, that was really not part of the leadership that I experienced. And I'm not criticizing that. That's just right. kind of the, the you know, the military has to be directive for the most part, right? Authoritative and go here, do this. And uh, for the most part, but when we talk about le- leading human beings, another podcast I did with uh, Robert Jordan and, and Olivia Wagner talked about human leadership. We're leading human beings. And if you can connect to that human factor, you can much more effectively lead. Does that resonate with with the process of empathy based leadership? I think it's the essence of it, right? Like that's <laughs> that is what it is. But I did have a benefit as the interrogator. I had no idea where Saddam was. There, so so my expertise in no way benefited us in finding Saddam. Now I had prisoners who did not trust me, but they had the knowledge. They had an idea. They could create a plan. They knew the war zone. They knew the strategy. So for me, it was like, Eric, your value, what you bring to the table can get us nowhere. So I was forced into empathy-based listening, but. Wow. What what an interesting approach. Yeah. Because I didn't know anything about Iraq. I've never been to a war zone. Yeah. So for me, it was like, man, you can do it your way and you are going to fail. Wow. But they're the enemy. 
that doesn't mean they cannot help you. They have what you need. You've yeah. got to figure out how to empower them. Man, that's insightful. That is super insightful. Okay, folks, we are going to take a quick break for capitalism. We're talking to Eric Maddox. We will be back in just a minute. And we are back. I am talking to Eric Maddox, author of the book titled Mission, uh, Blacklist Number One. And the book, I assume it's kind of the story you told. It's all about the capture of Saddam and the way you applied the empathy uh, based interrogation approach. That is super, super cool. So you've been out of DIA for a while now and you travel the world and you train to you train this this empathy based leadership process to different organizations. Can you say who some of your clients are? Yes. So some of my biggest clients think wealth management firms. Okay. Right. Think banks, accountants, insurance providers. Think of any service industry that sort of has a problem in that technology software is threatening to make them um, a commodity. Uh huh. So before availability of information was kind of a struggle. You had to have a wealth manager to, to get access to some good information. All that information is available online. The, the individual, their ability to build a relationship, communicate, and build trust with their clients, that is now the value proposition. And that's a movement, right? That, that, that was not the case before. So the secondary industry is anywhere where there's negotiations because negotiations are difficult and they're stressful. And we always have what we want to achieve. And to be able to listen and communicate and say, you've got to put your goals behind you. You can't get to the other side unless you listen to them, right? So I love negotiations. I love teaching negotiations because it's about, you know what you want. You know your plan. Do you know where they're coming from? Because if you did, if we knew every angle they were taking, this would be a piece of cake. Well, we can get it. They're trying to tell you. They're dying to tell you. They may not even know it. Yeah. You got to listen to them. They're going to wow. give you keywords, terms, phrases. I call them breadcrumbs. They're going to give you breadcrumb statements to tell them we're not listening to them. I'm having flashbacks right now of, of probably 10 different discussions where the breadcrumbs were there and you know elements of exactly what you're describing uh, are there. Negotiation in particular, I think I, for me anyway, and where I am in my business, negotiating different business deals negotiating win-win scenarios. I can see where this is really, you know, you have to really make that kind of connection, if you will, to make sure that other person knows that you are gen genuinely interested in their best interest, you know, along with yours. And right. um, again, in my experience, if that relationship isn't established, the negotiation is not going to go anywhere. Right. I, that's, that's it. Yeah. I, I like to teach people, you can be a hard negotiator and still build a relationship. And if you're a soft negotiator, they're not going to respect you. But the word hard shouldn't mean abrasive. It means mm -hmm. getting down to make sure we're maximizing value. Mm -hmm. We're maximizing theirs. We're maximizing yours. Because at the end of the day, it's never about money. It is not about money. They want to know, what are you bringing? Do you get what your role is in this partnership. Uh -huh. And when you can understand that, the, the money's, it's, it's limitless. Those are key components. Key components, I would say, uh, for any leader of any business to understand and to apply. The one thing I would add to that, uh, there's a book called When, written by Dan, Daniel Pink. Have you read it? I haven't. I'm trying to think if I have that book back here. Okay. For some reason I know that book. I don't think I've read it yet. In there, he talks about a concept of peak trough and recovery. So we all we we all go through this peak state in, in our normal day. We go through this peak state of high energy, high creativity, high alertness, able to really get the tough things done. Then at some point we transition to a trough where it's tough to get anything done. And then kind of the the in-between of of peak and trough is what he calls recovery. It's this brainstorm free idea thing. The point here that aligns with what you just got done talking about is ideally in that negotiation, both parties are in their peak state. 
Yeah. And I look at some of the decisions that I've made that I've later regretted. You know, you slap yourself and you go, what was I thinking? And as I reflect on those moments, I was in a trough. I wasn't at my my clearest uh, thinking when I made those those uh, right. more, those poor decisions. So if you haven't got to it yet, I recommend it. It's a it's a really good read. So Eric, how do potential clients reach you? Just hit me up. I mean, you can hit my Facebook. I mean, my website, ericmaddox.com. Okay. Or just shoot me an email. I keep okay. it simple. I'm an army guy. It's eric yeah. at ericmaddox.com. Eric at ericmaddox.com. That's cool. Yeah. Mine is, mine's a little more complicated. It's bob at robertpazzini.com. There you go. There you <laughs> Don't go. want to throw anybody off. So Eric, what haven't I asked you? Because what you've done and the way you've transitioned it into what you're doing now, I think is just incredible. You know, you've really cultivated um, this this gift that that you experienced during your military time. What What haven't I asked you? What else would you like to share? I would say what I've learned the most. So since I retired in 2014, you know, we're coming up on nine years now. What I hopefully have done well is listen to my client base because I thought, okay, people for some reason wanted to pay me to tell the story of Saddam, but it was in the audiences who were all like, oh, that was awesome. That was great. But they were saying, but I wish we could learn how you did this. Mm -hmm. And instead of saying, Oh, well, let me teach them how to interrogate. Now, they don't want to learn how to interrogate. They want to learn how to listen. So by going to them and saying, well, what, what, what do you mean this? Where would this help you? Eric, I want to be able to gain this influence. I want to be able to figure out if I'm hiring and firing the right people. I want to build a culture. And so when I said, okay, so you want to better communicate. And then I said, well, I can't just say, okay, here's how you do it. It's difficult. So then I had to look at where are the struggles and the struggles are very clear. Number one, we have listening distractions. On average, people only listen to approximately 25% of what they hear. So I couldn't just say, hey, you guys need to listen better, man. You don't listen to 25%. <laughs> no, no. Then we had to say, but why? And the reason is it's the way our brains work. We can hear, our brain can hear five times faster than the average person can talk. You have all that capacity. What do we feel in that capacity? Well, we feel all sorts. I mean, think when you're in a conversation, how many different directions your mind go? Yeah. Or you might, you might finish somebody else's sentence. We might finish somebody else's sentence, right? All these things. And it's like, why do we do that? Oh, we do it because what we realize is that when it comes to the human brain, we cannot compartmentalize what we're hearing versus what we're thinking about. So now these 80% capacity clouds filters covers. And we said, then where, what do we do with this 80%? Because our brains will never be empty. We think some people's brains are empty. They're not. So now we have to deal with that 80%. And what we said is we said, well, what do I need you listening for? Well, I need you to empathize. So these breadcrumbs are the paths to empathy, to seek to understand. So then we created the 10 categories of breadcrumbs. It's the key words, terms people most want you to hear when they make a statement. Huh. And then we said, wait a second, if I can pick up those key words, how do I demonstrate that I'm making this about you and not making it about myself? So we created again, this what it's an acronym, it's called IDAMAD, but it's a response process to say, when you respond to somebody, you're going to show them you're making it about them. Use this six-step IDAMAD process, because now we have a process. People like process so they can practice, so they can train. And then I'm going to make it real simple. I say, you give this five minutes. You do this for five minutes in any conversation and watch the reaction you get on this person because they're going to be drawn towards you. They're not oh. going to want to end the conversation. They're going to figure out how you all have some sort of something to do with this partnership in the future. So for me, it was like, hey, you're an interrogator. But what do people want? And don't guess. Let them tell you what your value is. And then you go discover how do we best serve their needs? Wow. That Can for me has kind of been my journey. You know, 57 years old, served for 26 years, owned my own business for just about 10 years now. In retrospect, all this makes so much sense. Can you just give an example of a breadcrumb? Like you mentioned 10. Can you tell us what one of them is? 
I, man, now you're hitting my, now you're getting on my, now you're, I love this stuff. Okay, Bob, check it out. Let's, uh, let's come up with an easy one. Okay. Any conversation Monday morning, come back to the office, whether it's zoom or live, you see somebody Monday morning guaranteed. What are we going to ask them? How's the weekend? How's your weekend? Right. We don't know what they say. Let's say they say something to the effect, the normal person, they go, oh, Man, I had a long weekend, right? What do we say? We'll say, yeah, man, I had a long weekend too. And we go off on our long weekend. They made a drop day breadcrumb. The word long is what I call a category one subjective statement breadcrumb. We do not have the right or certainly not the ability to determine what that word long means to them. And they know it. Everybody gets asked that question. Subconsciously, we have good EQ. We go, I don't think they really care about my weekend, but I'm going to test them because I would love to talk about my long weekend. But they go, I had a long weekend. Because wow. the, and when we go and talk about our long weekend, they go, I knew you didn't care. And now I got to listen to your stupid long weekend. But <laughs> if we simply would look at them and go, wow, long, what, what happened? Yeah. Watch the look on their face. They perk up and they're going to go, what has gotten into you? And Bob, I promise you're about to hear about somebody's really long weekend. But you're taking a step towards what I call their stage and they're going to open up to you. Right. So even if you think of words like tricky, it's a tricky situation. I know what tricky is. Uh, no, we don't. We don't know what tricky means to them at that moment in time. But we can also I can tell you the other great breadcrumb. Do you realize over 80 percent of the time when somebody asks you a question, they do not want to know your answer. Mm-hmm. They simply are using it as an opportunity to slightly shift the conversation. Right. I'm, I'm going to give you another. Can I give you another example? Please, please. This is fascinating. Okay. So I give speeches, right? Tell my story of Saddam. And I start off by saying, yeah, I was started off in the 82nd Airborne Division in the infantry, but then transitioned to Chinese Mandarin. Tell the story of Saddam. My experience in the 82nd don't really have anything to do with the tracking of Saddam. It's just the background. Mm-hmm. I get done with the speech. I open it up to Q&A. Guarantee. One of the very court first questions. Somebody raises their hand and they said, so you were, you were in the 82nd Airborne Division? Of course, if I was a bad listener, I'd be like, yeah, there's not an 83rd or, oh, yeah, 82nd Airborne Division. We have this great history and it was so hard and I became a jump master. No, they're asking that question not 99 times out of 100 because they had a grandfather who served in the 82nd in World War II, or they have a niece who was deployed in Afghanistan. Right. And, you know, right. and they want to divert the conversation. So I simply look at them and I go, I was in the 82nd. How are you familiar with the yeah. 82nd? And they go, well, my, my nephew's there right now. Yeah. Wow. Blah, 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 blah. Right. They drop a breadcrumb. They didn't ask because they want your question. They want to make it about themselves. And that's cool because if we get on some, what I call their stage, yeah, nobody else does it. And that makes you a, that makes you a scarcity. And when you have a scarcity, you have value. And they and when you get on someone's stage, they don't ever want you to go away. And now you have value. Wow, wow, that is just absolutely fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. I might have to get you to come out here to Virginia Beach. So um, we'll we'll talk more about that offline. Um, are you familiar with uh, with the former FBI hostage negotiator, Chris Voss, and the book that he wrote? Yes. I think <laughs> I've read that book four times. So, okay. so, so tell me tell me your Chris Voss. Well, uh, well, I'm just going to say, you know, he uses a process called tactical empathy. And I just wonder if that if, the, if there's a lot of similarities and, you know, it's empathy based listening, I think. But hostage rescue could be different than, than a business negotiation. But I'm just wondering, you know, are there, did you find similarities there? Did you find that information be complimentary or was it, was it enlightening in some capacity? Um, it's extremely complimentary. I read it four times, not because I disagreed with him, right? He's an amazing writer. And one of the things Chris is really good at is he's willing, right? It's conflict resolution. Uh huh. Whether it's hostage, negotiation, it's conflict resolution. What Chris demonstrates and what he's mastered, he's such a great teacher, is he's willing to give 
up control of a situation to gain influence in the situation. That everybody in hostage conflict resolution, they want to gain control, get control, uh-huh. get, make it about your control. And I'm like, what do you need control for, man? You need to influence this person. You're going to influence more in their on their stage. I always use it. Whose stage are you on? Yeah, yeah. You're going to gain influence. But you've got to get on their stage. These guys are freaking out. They're so scared. Give them control so you gain the influence. That is fascinating. And that's ultimately, I imagine, what you did in Iraq in some capacity. <laughs> that's all I did. I didn't know where Saddam was. Yeah. Wow. Like the prisoners knew I had to give them control to gain their influence. Wow. That is just, again, fascinating. Folks, one more time, eric at ericmaddox.com is your email address. And then your website, I guess, is just ericmaddox.com. That's it. Simple, simple. Eric, a- a- anything else before we sign off? No. I uh, The last <laughs> thing I would say for the business leaders, if you're going to mentor young people, people say, well, I want to, I want to. I'm like, find your passion. Find your passion. We'll figure out how to monetize it. Find what you can spend every day, every hour of the day doing that you love to do. Man, we'll monetize it. Isn't that interesting? I just, I have a book behind me that I just wrote. It just came out December 1st. And, you know, the process of writing and you've gone through it, you know, sometimes this is awesome. And sometimes it's like, man, just, you know, nothing's fallen out of my pen today. And, uh, <laughs> And, uh, but now that it's done and it's over, I think to myself, all right, I know what the next one's going to be. And I know what the one after that's going to be. I mean, I really do enjoy it. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a process of self-discovery. You write to inform others and you wind up informing yourself. At least that was my experience. See, that's awesome. Congratulations, by the way. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it, man. So super fun. Eric Maddox, man, I really appreciate the discussion. You know, post post Iraq, you've really done some some remarkable things, and uh, hopefully, you're out there helping leaders be the best they can be on a daily basis, helping teams be united and and moving in the same cardinal direction. And uh, man, I thank you for what you do, and thanks for being on the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. Thanks, Bob. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. To contact Bob directly or to learn more about how Bob can advance you and your organization through leadership training, team building, executive coaching, and public speaking, visit robertpizzini.com, Robert, P-I-Z-Z-I-N-I.com, and connect with him on LinkedIn.